How are you? Okay, so tonight I want to talk um, really in terms of uh, some of the overview, some of the context within which we practice. Uh, the word in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text that's usually translated as meditation, is the word bhavana. And it more literally means cultivation. So there was the Buddha in a very agrarian society very much conveyed this sense of cultivating the ground, creating the conditions so that certain qualities, certain traits could emerge very uh, free, very fulfilling. But the work is not to seek a quality like insight, for example, um, in a, a way that is determined and grasping like, I will consider this sitting a failure if I don't have a certain kind of experience. Um, it's not to create certain kinds of altered states of consciousness, which are very possible, it's considered, uh, but are quite transitory, but rather to cultivate the ground to create the conditions for transformation. There's an interesting take on that word bhavana in the Tibetan tradition, which I find quite amusing. It's a phrase, instead of saying cultivation, although it has that meaning as well, it's a phrase that's something like getting used to it. Uh, which the idea behind which I think is some sense that most of us, perhaps one could even say all of us at some time, have had tremendous experiences of clarity, of moving beyond the constraints of an ordinary way of thinking, a habitual way of viewing. We've had experiences of tremendous connection and love and compassion, but we may not be awfully used to it. And so maybe we have an experience and we think, I don't think I'll tell anyone about that. Or, I must have fabricated that. I must have made that up. That couldn't have been genuine or real. Or that's freaky. You know, I don't think I'll go back there or whatever it might be. And so the invitation from the point of view of that tradition is to more abide with our deepest knowing so that it's not this very occasional flash that we may in fact be alienated from but it's more where we can dwell, where we can live, the things that we really have discerned, we've understood, the kinds of openings that are, are possible for us. So that's bhavana, that's our practice. Another way of seeing it really is in terms of a skills training, which is completely apart from dogma or belief system. It's first of all, a, a training in concentration which is considered a certain kind of concentration. It's a very balanced concentration. It's not a focus that is born of stress, that is somehow brittle, that can't be sustained, but something that is more about our attention being steadfast, not being so flickering, so wavering. Concentration is usually practiced classically by simply having an object of attention that we gather our attention around and we try to hold that object in some balance. This is what I was saying before about how sometimes people think if they just get a stranglehold on the breath and they hold on really tightly, their attention won't wander. Well, actually it will wander more. There's a certain way of relating to that object of attention. I used to imagine myself in my practice holding something very fragile or something precious, like an object made of glass in my hand. And knowing that if I were to grab it too tightly, it would shatter and break. But if I just get lazy or negligent and let my hand fall open, it would fall off and break. So the relationship is one of almost like cradling or cherishing that object to be present with in a more sustained way and 
Above all, it's the ability to know how to begin again without recrimination, without further digression, without judgment, without blame, without thinking, oh, I need to do some remedial work. You know, I blew it, I failed. But to actually be able to let go and begin again and let go and begin again. And that is actually the essence of the practice of concentration. The balance is actually quite intricate. Said that many, many aspects of the mind are developed in the course of meditation practice that are about tranquility and peace and ease. It's like untangling, being at ease, quieting down, feeling calm. And there are many, many aspects of the practice that are about energy and alertness and awakeness and interest and investigation clarity and all of that is happening at the same time to deepen that entire spectrum of qualities and to bring them into greater balance is part of our work and this as i was saying earlier um, to the group is not something terribly strategic it's not like you you know we would urge you to sit there and think do i have too much energy maybe it's a little too much tranquility you know it's not like that, but in the ongoing process of the development, these are the qualities that come into balance. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard uh, one of us talk at some time or another about first moving into this building. Uh, Joseph and I had met in India at my first meditation retreat in January of 1971. Uh, I met Jack Cornfield. Um, in Boulder, Colorado in 1974 when I came back. Joseph was teaching at the Naropa Institute, which had just opened that summer. And our joke was that amongst our community of friends who'd all met in India, he was the only one with a job and an apartment. So when we came back from India, we all moved in, which is true, about eight of us moved into his one bedroom apartment. And he had an enlightenment experience over that, which I'll let him tell you. Uh, another time. And in that, in that uh, great exodus to Boulder, uh, we met up with Jack. And soon after that, we began just, the three of us began just wandering around when we'd receive an invitation to lead a retreat. We'd go there and lead the retreat. And at the end of that, we never knew if there'd be another retreat till the next letter would arrive. And somebody would say, well, I can get together some friends and a cook. Will you come teach a retreat? We would go off there until that was done. And somewhere in that process, somebody suggested to us that maybe we would like to start a retreat center of our own. And we said, sure. And most of the kind of expertise, so to speak, was on the East Coast. Um, so we looked up and down the East Coast for a place, and finally somebody suggested that we go to look at this place in Barry, Massachusetts, then owned by the Catholic Church. And so we came here in December 1975, and we couldn't decide what to do. You know, this was an era when it wasn't really clear how many people would ever be interested in meditation practice in this country or this kind of meditation practice in this country and the place seemed awfully big to us you know given where we were in our lives and at the same time it just seemed perfect you know uh, as a place for a retreat center and not really being able to figure out what to do we decided to go to downtown barry for lunch and those of you who drove up that way know that Barry's a very classic New England town with a town green just in the center of it. And in those days, there was a monument on the town green which had engraved upon it the Barry town motto, which is tranquil and alert. So we took a look at that and we said, okay, there's an omen. Any town that has a motto like tranquil and alert should have a meditation center in it. And so we did it. And here we are all these years later, you know, not just because the words are perfect, but because the, the balance between those two aspects of the mind is so uh, intrinsic to the meditative process. 
to really deepen that tranquility, but not for the sake of being sluggish or cut off or in a fog, to have just as much alertness and interest. That's the, the nature of the, the deepening of the practice. So very uh, classical unfolding of a meditative journey would begin with choosing an object of concentration and practicing for the sake of some steadfastness, some steadiness of attention, a greater steadiness of attention. Once that had been developed, then there's a process of opening of paying attention to many different kinds of experiences for the sake of cultivating insight. And which object one might choose for that first phase of really working with trying to deepen concentration, it really could be anything. And in the, in the traditional teachings, they talk about many different kinds of objects, of visualizations and um, imagery and qualities like loving kindness and reflections and, and so many possibilities. The breath, the feeling of the breath is a very standard one. Partly because as my first teacher told us, you don't have to believe anything in order to feel your breath. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or Hindu or reject anything else. If you're breathing, you can be meditating. And then as he said, I've always thought quite charmingly, he said, the breath is very portable. You know, so if we can practice in a somewhat stylized or formal sense of, oh, now I'm in a meditation retreat and I'm paying attention to my breath, we can practice anywhere. It's a resource, it's free, it's private, no one needs to know what you're doing. But having actually undergone a kind of training process in a retreat like this or in daily practice, what we find is that we can gather our attention, have a sense of centeredness with the feeling of the breath in any situation, which is really the point. It's not just to have a final time for a weekend, you know, or uh, 20 minutes a day or half an hour a day, but to have tools that can support us to have a different kind of life. So most people, you know, perhaps not all, but many people certainly experience a certain degree of being scattered, of uh, not having that ability to be centered. It may be that in some arenas of life, one is more present, more centered than in others, but that too leads to often a kind of feeling of fragmentation. The way some people, so many people will say um, they've compartmentalized their lives in some way that they feel like they're a different person at work than they are at home. Or someone actually said this to me in a class in New York, which I, it was a comment I've often made sort of as a joke, but she just raised her hand and said, I feel filled with loving kindness and compassion for all beings everywhere, as long as I'm alone. But once I'm with others, it's like bad news. And, and I said, Wow, people really say that, you know? And people really feel that, many of us. Or it might be the other way around. We feel quite okay as long as we're interacting with others, but very uneasy about being alone. Our lives can be so split apart, so fragmented. So the process of concentration is that process of gathering what might be a normally fairly distracted or scattered energy or fragmented sense and just bringing it together around an object. And maybe 10 seconds later, we need to do that again. But that's okay, because over time what happens is that there is, it's almost like this laser-like kind of focusing so that we can cut through many layers of obscuration and confusion with the, the power. And in fact, uh, even in traditional teachings, 
the path of concentration or the development of concentration is considered a path of power. It's like personal empowerment because that's an awful lot of energy that could be available to us, except it's flying all over the place, obsessed with the past, obsessed with the future, judgment, speculation everywhere, and we just bring it together so that it does become available to us and we are enlivened and empowered by it. It's also considered like a path of healing because even like in that movement of my hands coming together in that gathering, it's a movement toward integration or toward wholeness to have that centeredness, no matter what is going, no matter what is going on is moving away from fragmentation. The evolution of the practice when we have developed some degree of concentration is the emphasis on the quality known as mindfulness, which of course is a word that's used so much more commonly these days. Every once in a while I hear someone on TV say it, you know, in some other context, and I always like perk up, like mindful. It's used in so many different ways. Um, the way we tend to use the word, it's actually a compound in a way. It's, it's mindfulness and clear comprehension put together. Um, and what that means is that being mindful doesn't just mean knowing what's going on. It means knowing what's going on without being caught in habitual reaction to be able to perceive without being just dominated by our history, our projection into the future, our fears, our judgment, our comparison to what we think should be happening. In a way, mindfulness is it's a little bit like truth telling, you know, to be able to say, okay, this is what's happening right now without so many layers of assumption and interpretation and so on. In many ways, you know, our experience arises and our reaction to it is so fast that it seems like one thing. They're, they're really enmeshed. And when that happens, then there's a certain feeling of permanence, inevitability, universality, like everyone must feel this precise thing about that experience. And we practice mindfulness really to be able to, first of all, make the distinction between the arising of our direct experience and our reaction or interpretation of it, to be able to see there's some space in there. So for example, um, a while ago, maybe like a year ago, I was in New York City and I was waiting in a, like a cafe to meet a friend for tea and she was really late. So I took out my cell phone, which is virtually never on and turned it on, left it on the table and kept looking at it and looking at it and looking at it. It never rang and she showed up like, I think over an hour late. And I said, where were you? And she said, I called you four times. You never picked up the phone. And that's when I realized, oh, my phone doesn't ring anymore for some reason. <laughs> and this is the first I knew of it. So I spent the next probably three hours pressing that phone, <laughs> trying to get it to ring. And I couldn't do it. So that night I was teaching uh, with a friend, a colleague. And he spoke first, and somewhere in the course of his talking, someone's cell phone went off. So when it was my turn to speak, I said, okay, uh, you know, maybe the person whose cell phone it was felt some humiliation. Other people might have felt some annoyance. I was sitting there feeling really envious. I thought, wow, <laughs> that person's cell phone rings. And not only that, they've got a really good ringtone. They have a better ringtone than I had when I had a ringtone. And I don't even have a ringtone. Same sound, 
very different responses, right? Because it's a world of contingency. It's a world of movement, of change, where so many conditions are coming together in any moment for any one person's reaction. And then they pass. So what we want to do in the process of deepening mindfulness is to hear the sound, to see the reaction, and know that they're distinct. Because then we have some space. Then there are many possibilities for us. So there's a lot of emphasis on just trying to get to our direct experience. What's actually happening right now? We do it with sensations. So when I said um, earlier today, bring your attention to your hands. And notice that your direct experience is not actually fingers. It's different changing sensations. So why do we do that? You know, if I were holding this and you asked me what I was feeling, I could very readily say a cup, which is true. And we like it when someone says a cup, you know, because that's what we've agreed to call it. This is our conventional consensual reality. But I would call it a cup yesterday. I'd call it a cup today. I'd call it a cup tomorrow. Whereas if you asked me what I was feeling and I said pressure, coolness, pulsing, throbbing, it's an introduction to a world of constant change, which is also true. And this is what we are directing our attention to in the process of mindfulness. What's actually happening right now? What is our direct experience? The first thing we do after coming to that place of seeing the distinction between the experience and the reaction is to look at all the layers that we may have been superimposing upon that experience and see if we can peel some of them away. So if it's a painful sensation in our bodies or a heartache, maybe we're adding a seemingly unchanging future that's dire. What's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? What's it going to feel like next year? Never going to get any better. So that we feel defeated and overcome. Not even so much from the genuine difficulty that's happening right now, but from all of that anticipated pain as well. You know, so if that's what we see ourselves doing, we see if we can let go of some of that anticipation and say, okay, this is what's happening right now. As we do that, it's not just to have a kind of better relationship with our experience, although that's true. You know, if we're not so uh, compulsively reacting out of old habit, we do have a better relationship with our experience. It's much more full. It's much more complete. It's much more gratifying and fulfilling because we are actually present and experiencing whatever it is. But it also most fundamentally becomes the basis for insight or wisdom or understanding. Because we're not so caught up in those reactions, because we're more present with what is, because we're seeing more clearly, then many things will be revealed to us. I was, uh, in some of the groups I was meeting with today, I was talking about sitting here one year as, as a student and going through just some tremendous, incredible bout of anger as I was sitting and not feeling very good about it. And one of our teachers from India, Mane Manindra, was here visiting and teaching. So at one point I complained tremendously to him about my experience and he said to me, this is how you should relate to your anger. He said, imagine a spaceship has landed on the front lawn and these Martians come out and they come up to you and they say, what is anger? 
What is anger? That's how you should relate to your anger. That was different. <laughs> you know, instead of berating myself and feeling horrible, you know, I've been practicing meditation for a gazillion years. I've been in therapy forever. You know, I spent all that money. Why am I so angry? Um, or thinking, yes, I should be angry and, you know, look at what they did and it was so horrible and I'm going to do this vengeful thing and that vengeful thing and that vengeful thing and finally destroy their lives by publicly, you know, <laughs> denouncing them. What is anger? That's different. It's not right. It's not wrong. But what is it? What is this feeling? What's its nature? What are its characteristics? In the Buddhist psychology, anger and fear are considered the same state. That's interesting, too. Anger being the outflowing, expressive, energized form, fear being the held-in, frozen, imploding form of just the same state, wanting to strike out against what's happening, declare it to be untrue. So if we can look at the state of anger you know, not denouncing it, not justifying it, not extending it, but really, like, what is it? We see many things. We see anger is also a composite. We see moments of fear and moments of sorrow, moments of rage, moments of helplessness. We see that these are constantly changing, that it's not static however much we might identify with it and say, this is who I really am. The other 50,000 things who came, which came and went, they don't count. This is who I really am. But in truth, it's moving, it's changing. It's not static, it's not solid. In fact, it's not substantial because of that constant change. And once we see change, we see an alive system. And that's different. It's a very different understanding about the nature of our experience. Same old crummy feeling we might not have wanted, but if it arises, it's the basis, it's the ground, perhaps for some very deep understanding. And that's what mindfulness is. It means paying attention to any experience that comes without having our perception distorted by holding on, pushing away, or going to sleep. So the way the Buddha described it in the teachings was saying that according to how he described the way we perceive the world, he said in any moment we perceive the world through one of six senses. It's the five senses as we know them, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and then the sixth sense not being something paranormal, but um, knowing through the mind, emotion, imagery, thinking. So there are six senses in common uh, understanding, common experience, according to the Buddha. And he said, every one of those experiences is felt by us to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's not intrinsic to the experience. You know, there are many reasons in any moment why we might feel something to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. You know, many conditions coming together. But for that, because of that combination of conditions, in any moment we perceive our experience in that way. We feel it to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Uh, and then the Buddha went on to say that our conditioned tendency when that experience is pleasant is to hold on, to grasp, to want to be in control, to be in defiance of the truth of change, to make something static, to own it, to possess it. And our conditioned tendency when that experience is felt by us to be unpleasant is anger and fear. It's aversions, to strike out against it, wanting to separate from it. Perhaps we feel betrayed by the unfolding of life. 
Perhaps it's fear, perhaps it's anger, but it's some kind of reaction like that. And he went on to say, when we perceive whatever, hearing, tasting, touching, to be neutral, we kind of go to sleep habitually. You know, we numb out, we're in some kind of cocoon, we disconnect. We're not, in fact, generally speaking, awfully trained to subtlety of awareness. It often takes a great deal of intensity, pleasant or unpleasant, for us to feel alive. And yet there are all those places in between, just a breath, just a sound, where we just go somewhere else. So then the Buddha went on to say that we can experience pleasure fully, completely, <clears throat> not withdrawing from it, not uh, you know, trying to dampen it down. We can experience pleasure fully and completely, but without that extra thing, the grasping and holding, wanting to own. We can experience pain fully without feeling so isolated, without our hearts closing down, without all of that condemnation of ourselves, like I should have been able to avoid this. And we can actually wake up and be much more present and completely alive and connected to all those neutral places in between. And that's mindfulness. It's the quality that allows us to be aware of what's happening in the moment, to connect to it fully without adding, holding on, pushing away, or going to sleep. Now, sometimes people feel that if they were to really progress in the development of meditation or bhavana, that everything would kind of flatten out. You know, the pleasure would go away, but that's okay because the pain would go away. And everything would just sort of morph into this gray blob. And some people long for that. They long for the day that uh, it all just sort of numbs out completely. And other people dread it, you know, and, and they think it, it would be, will be a terrible uh, outcome, but it's not what happens anyway, you know, so it doesn't really matter how one uh, projects upon it because we can experience and do experience the pleasure fully and the pain and the neutrality, but with an entirely different relationship to it. You know, so this goes back to what Susan was saying um, the first night, which seems kind of like a long time ago now, uh, I guess last night. And uh, when she said, what happens in our practice is much less important than how we relate to what happens in our practice. Because the transformation comes from that changed relationship to everything. That's why you know, all the time we spend feeling we're not doing it right because we're not having the right experience is really sort of a waste of time because there's no wrong experience. It all depends on how we relate to it. When I was first practicing in my first retreat, and sad to say sometime after that, I had this very uh, fixed notion in my mind of what good meditation would look like. And that was to be sitting bathed in brilliant white light. I just decided that was good meditation. I mean, nobody had ever told me that. Maybe I read it somewhere. But sad to say, I didn't have any white light. I had knee pain. Um, I had fear. I had anger. I had sleepiness. I had some tremendous understanding uh, about myself and about my life, but none of it was good enough because it wasn't white light. It certainly wasn't brilliant white light. And it took really quite some time for me to realize that in effect, I was really actually practicing discontent because I was just dismissing everything as not the right thing, not good enough, it's not white light, it's not white light. 
until, you know, eventually I did realize what I was doing and that every single one of those experiences was actually very important, although scorned by me. And that what I needed to do was not somehow continue my quest for an experience I wasn't actually having, but to transform my relationship to what was happening in my experience. And that, in effect, is the practice. That was a very wise move. We say mindfulness can go anywhere. Mindfulness doesn't take the shape of what it's watching. We don't need to be serene. We don't need to be peaceful. It's nice, but we can have uh, many difficult experiences coming up, many pleasant experiences come up, many neutral experiences come up. That's outside of our control, actually. But how we relate to it is really crucial, and that's actually the practice. And I spend quite a lot of time in New York City these days, and people are often saying, they often say things like, it was okay for the Buddha, you know, sitting under a tree, living in India, but it's too bad I live in Manhattan. You know, if I didn't live in Manhattan, I could actually meditate. But it's so noisy here. You know, it's really too bad. And, um, you know, if only I weren't so tired. If only I didn't have so much going on. You know, if only my life were, like, completely resolved. And I'd forgiven everybody already. And, you know, everything was, was just so peaceful. Then I could meditate. But if mindfulness can go anywhere, really, if it doesn't take the shape of what it's watching, then it should be the hallmark of our freedom because it's not based on conditions being a certain way. We have a a wonderful and very funny um, meditation teacher, this Tibetan, named Sokni Rinpoche. And he's quite a good mimic. I've often thought oh, he should have been an actor. I mean, not that he really should have been an actor, but <laughs> he could have been an actor, you know, because he's this tremendous mimic. And he likes to make fun of his students, which is like us. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's often kind of funny. So he said, he'll say something like, well, let's say you live in New York City and you're trying to meditate in your living room and it's just terribly noisy outside so you start thinking I can't meditate here because it's too noisy I'm going to move into my closet and so you create this beautiful sacred space in your closet you know an altar and uh, beautiful wall hangings and you know this perfect cushion that you sit down on with nothing like rubbing nothing irritating nothing like folded against itself you know so that it's rubbing your skin it's all it's just so wonderful and you go into your closet and you're meditating and then you hear the sound of the plumbing in the pipes and you think oh no you know I can't meditate I hear that sound and so you go out and you buy those kind of um, ear things that they wear on the airport tarmac you know and you're sitting there in your closet like afraid of a sound you know so if the fruit of a meditation practice is that you're afraid of your life. That's not very good, really. And it needs a reframing. It's the definition of mindfulness, which is really important for us to remember, which is having a changed relationship to whatever comes our way, however we perceive it to be. The process of the mindfulness will build upon the work we have done to deepen concentration, to have a greater steadfastness of attention. Otherwise, we will be able to pay attention only until we are caught in some tremendous train of discursive thinking. I also use this example with one of the groups today, said, you know, it's like, it's kind of like this joke we tell sometimes about what we'd say would be a typical five or 10 or 15 minutes in a meditator's life. You know, you sit here, minding your own business, feeling your breath, and then you have the thought, let me see how I do this, 
um, you have the thought, I wonder what's going to be for lunch tomorrow. And then you think, well, you know, tea was really good. That hummus was, was really incredible. I think they made it themselves. You know, that's really amazing. I wonder if they give out recipes at the end of the retreat. And then you think, I think I'll be a vegetarian from now on. Because after all, you know, it would be much more consonant with my ethical values. It would be much better for me. Okay, now I'm a vegetarian. And then you think, it's hard to be a vegetarian. <laughs> you know, maybe, like, you know, you can't really be a vegetarian unless you can cook. Because, like, how many times can you eat, like, a baked potato or something in a restaurant? You know, that's just, like, that's really hard. So I better really learn how to cook. And then you think... I wonder what time that bookstore closes on Sunday. I wonder if I could get there, you know, like right after the retreat. That's what I'll do. You know, I'll just like run into my car as soon as it's over and I'll, you know, go to Harvard Square and I'll go to the bookstore and I'll buy a whole bunch of vegetarian cookbooks. And then you think, while I'm in the bookstore, I think I'll get that, I'll go over to the travel section, I'll get that book on Mexico because I've never been to Mexico and I really want to go there for my next vacation. And then you think, well, I know, I meditate now, and I'm a vegetarian. I'm going to go to India. <laughs> you know, and you're kind of walking down the streets of New Delhi in your mind, and you kind of wake up. And, you, and it's like, what's really kind of interesting about that whole process is that very often the last thing we remember thinking is, I wonder what's going to be for lunch tomorrow. <laughs> and then we're just subsumed in that whole chain of associative thinking, which isn't bad. It's not like we're trying to annihilate it or obliterate it. But that's a fairly innocuous example, of course. How many of those are so filled with anxiety, you know, or a sense of insufficiency or, or whatever it might be? What we're trying to do is know what we're thinking as we're thinking it, know what we're feeling as we're feeling it, to have that kind of immediacy of presence through both the the platform of the concentration and the expansiveness of the mindfulness. If we can do that, we will have a choice in terms of action. We will have a sense of options. We'll be connected, we'll be aware, we'll be balanced. And how we respond will really be something that we can work with. There's a, there's a feeling of creativity, of flexibility, of possibility as, as we deepen those qualities. And then the third skill that we are developing in the course of the meditative process is really compassion. It's loving kindness or compassion. It's a movement of the heart. It's a sense of inclusiveness, both toward all of our experience and toward one another toward all of life, rather than excluding and cutting off and pulling away from, disregarding, ignoring aspects of ourselves or beings within the, the great fabric of, of life itself. We include rather than exclude and we connect rather than ignore. And we do it in many, many ways. I really do believe, first of all, I believe compassion is a skill. Um, that loving-kindness is a skill, that it's not a skill in a mechanical sense, but it involves stepping outside of what might be our normal rut to be willing to take some risks and to experiment with responding in a different way. So, for example, um, think of that moment when you come back from India in your mind <clears throat> or wherever you may have gone for some long, long, long period of time rather than being with the breath or being with the sensations in the body. How are we in that moment? <clears throat> because that moment, even if the word compassion is never voiced, even if it's never articulated, that's the moment when it's called for. Because it's very, very easy to kind of come back from maybe falling asleep or being in some other state and then going on a tirade against oneself for having been distracted. All of which, of course, 
adds a tremendous amount of time to the distraction and is so demoralizing. So that moment when we realize we've been distracted, we've been far, far away, perhaps for a very long time, is like a moment of opportunity, not just for wakefulness, but for kindness. To realize that, okay, we can, I can let go, I can start again. And 10 seconds later, I can do that again, is really like developing the skill of kindness. And it's also, uh, part of that is exploring the nature of kindness. You know, so many times we think it's kind of weak or it's like being lazy or you're not going to learn anything if you're too kind or, or whatever it might be. But is that true? You know, when we actually pay attention? What is served by going on that tirade of self-blame as compared to having the heartfulness and the energy, that spirit of renewal to be able to start again, to be able to begin again? So it's like a skill. Or here's my favorite example these days. Let's say you're the kind of person who at the end of the day kind of looks back at your day as though to evaluate yourself, like how'd I do today? And let's just say you're the kind of person who will fixate on the mistake that you made today, like that really stupid thing you said at lunch at the meeting. So much so that your entire sense of who you are and all that you will ever be just collapses around that comment. We develop a certain skill to open our awareness, to pay attention to a bigger sense of who we are. It's not like make-believe, you know, it's not as though you're insisting, well, that was really a very brilliant and witty thing I said at lunch. Maybe it was really stupid. And there are consequences to that. But that's not all that we are, ever. You know, that's just like a distorted way of thinking. And if we can see that, and it's almost as though asking yourself, anything else happened today? Like anything good? It's like a movement. It's a willingness to kind of check things out, oneself and others from different angles, instead of being so stuck, so riveted to a merely reactive state. We develop the skill of loving kindness and compassion through paying attention. We pay attention to ourselves differently. We pay attention to others differently. Like who do we tend to kind of create as the other? not through antipathy, but just through indifference. They don't count. They're not like me. Anything might happen to them. It doesn't matter, really. So what happens when we notice that and we challenge that and we pay attention to others in a very different way? than we might ordinarily be accustomed to. A very different relationship ensues, not because we're trying to be, you know, loving, perfect people, but because we're seeing things in a very different way, not so bound by those constraints and that kind of walled-in reality that we haven't been willing to see beyond before. So compassion or loving kindness are like skills of greater awareness. And we develop them in the course of meditation practice, both through, um, I think, any kind of meditation practice and also through practices which, as you know, many of you uh, have been using the word metta, practices that are specifically designed for the uh, more intense cultivation of those qualities, some of which we'll do together tomorrow. But these are, that's really the nature of the meditative process, is developing the skill of concentration, the skill of mindfulness, the skill of loving kindness or compassion. And in the course of doing it, anything might happen. I often liken meditation practice to being like going into this old attic room and turning on the light. So that's like the light of awareness. And what we see is everything. We see these beautiful, magnificent treasures 
that are so awesome, we can hardly believe that such a thing exists in our very own attic. And we see these dusty, neglected corners, and we think, ooh, I better clean that up. And we see these very kind of unwelcome objects, too. And we might think, I thought I got rid of that long ago. What's that still doing here? We see everything. And it's all fine. Because our purpose is, is really not to shun you know, or reject or hold on to anything, but to change how we see it all, to include everything within the, the light of these qualities. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you. We'll have a walking period now and then uh, come back for. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.